people do good things and they get blessings from God. Therefore, the core message of Scripture is be good, do good, so that you can get blessed by God. That's our default way of coming to the Scriptures. And if we come at it particularly to books like Esther, then we can really get the message twisted around. The problem, of course, with this perspective is that it's not the message of the Bible at all. That's not at all the way the book actually tells us to read itself. The message of the Scriptures is something more like there is a good God who's always been. And this good God made us. And we're made in His image to mirror something of what He's like to one another. But we've rebelled against His good rule over us. We've substituted, we've traded Him in for other things. Therefore, we are all bad. Equally bad. But Jesus is intrinsically good. He lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death. And because He rose again from the dead, there is now life available in Him for all. And God's ultimate plan is to renew creation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the message of the Bible. So when we read Esther, we're not looking for good moralistic behaviors to emulate in order to earn God's favor. So we're not really looking for What did Esther do that was good in order that I could also do it, in order that I could also be good like Esther? And we're not really looking for what did Esther do that was bad, and I don't want to do that so that I can be good. But there's a great danger when we read that we read it that way. Because everything else in our lives teaches us that our worth and value is dependent upon our performance. That's not at all the message of Scripture. So what we're looking for is we're looking to understand the character of God. And we're looking to understand from the decisions of others how we're like them in their sin and how we're not like them. And how that drives us to our knees seeking forgiveness from Jesus. So as we jump into this today further, really resist the tendency to hear, here's five lessons on how to have the best life you can possibly have now. Here's three things not to do in order to not be like Esther. Here's two really great behaviors in order that you could earn God's favor. Instead, listen to it like this. There's a great God who offers great forgiveness for all our great screw-ups. Maybe you don't do what Esther did. But there'll be other things in Scripture that you have done. So there's a huge danger in this, and I hope that we can be mindful of that in order that we could use the book the right way. That was the introduction. All right, chapter 2 starts like this. After these things. After what things? Well, in case you missed last week, here's a brief review. We're jumping in the story in chapter 2 in the third year of the reign of a king of Persia. And this king in the first chapter we learned through a really big party. Does anybody remember how long it lasted? 180 days. Now for those of us math challenged in the room, how many months is that? Six month party. And then that wasn't enough, so he threw a cherry on top seven more days. 
Now, what we didn't spend much time talking about last week was why. Why did the king of Persia, Ashurus, or his Greek name is Xerxes, why did he throw a six-month party? Well, here's what he did. He got all of his male associates together. So think military men, officials, court leaders, his cabinet, his advisors. A massive room full of men. He threw a party with an open bar for six months. Why? He threw it for one purpose. He threw it because he wanted to show off his wealth and his power. Now, you and I do the same thing. When, when you get a new outfit, you don't typically just wear it around the house. When you get a new car, you don't leave it in your garage. When you get a new TV, you don't just sit alone and gawk at its greatness, right? You invite others to observe how wonderful you are and bask in your glory. Correct? Do something very uncommon and be honest in church. This is what we do. Now, the difference, of course, is your glory can be basked in for maybe an hour. But the king, it took six months. So the party lasted six months because that's, much, that's how much stuff he had. It took that long for his wealth to be paraded in front of people. Can you imagine the temptations to pride and arrogance and bigotry that must have been present in his heart? For most of us, the very worst thing that could happen is to get what we most want. Because the things we most want end up being destructive for us. So imagine a massive room full of drunk men and the king parading all of his stuff in front of them. Now the party came to a halt when the king in his drunken stupor called for his wife to be paraded in front of them and she refused. So he got rid of her. So that after these things is a selfish, evil king who's the most powerful man on the planet, a queen disposed because she didn't want to get treated like a Hooters waitress, and a massive kingdom on the power of chauvinistic Persian rulers. That's the after these things. Now let's go on. After these things, when the anger of King Ashurus had abated, he remembered Vasti, that was his wife, what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let all the beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch. If you're here and there's words you don't know, ask your mommy later. <laughs> Who's in charge of the women? Let their cosmetics be given them and let the king's woman, let, let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vasti. And here comes a massive shocker. This pleased the king. And he did so. Now, if you're here today and you thought the show The Bachelor was innovative, you're wrong. 2,400 years ago, we have The Bachelor Persia edition. 
Now, what's hard to tell in the story is between Esther chapter 1 and Esther chapter 2, a period of time of roughly three years has passed. And these three years weren't particularly good for the king. Sources outside of Scripture tell us what happened in those years. If, you've, if you know the story, I'll just briefly tell you. There's these three years where King Xerxes was in his mid-30s, and he decided to do what his daddy failed to do. So dad had the throne first, then he came to power and decided, I'm going to be greater than my dad, King Darius. I'm going to extend the nation further than he was able to do. So he declared war on, anybody know? Greece, all right? This was the only power that he wasn't the power over at this point. Now, I'm not recommending you go do this, but if you've seen the original movie 300, that is the story of his attempt to overthrow Greece. So King Xerxes had, at this point, the largest, most powerful army the world had ever known up to this point. Hundreds of thousands of troops. Greece was way past its heyday. So he should have had no trouble taking Greece. But if you've seen the movie or read the book, you know what happens. He goes with his much, much greater size of army, much more powerful force, and what happens? He fails. He becomes the laughingstock of this whole corner of the world. So imagine with me, if you will, there's a king of great power who has lost a war and he's lost a wife. Therefore, he's probably lost some respect and some power. So what happens when there's a man with a lot of accolades who lost a wife, failed like his daddy, lost what should have been an easy war, and is still on top of the world, but perception is everything, isn't it? So there's a sense of a loss of power. Well, what do you do? Well, one of the things you do is you go to other people for counsel. Please, please, please. When you need counsel, don't go to young, single men. <laughs> I'm actually not kidding. What do young, single men say? Go get a girl. Let's go to the bar. Let's go pick one up. A little bit of sex will fix everything. Nothing's changed. The world is exactly the same as it was 2,400 years ago. The council around him tells him, verse 3, gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem. Uh, okay. The bachelor of Persia was essentially this. Get all the most beautiful young virgins in the nation, spend a year prepping them, and then line them up one by one by one by one. Each night the king gets a new one, and from them you get to choose which one you like the best. Now let's reflect here just for a moment. If the Bible isn't good people do good things and get blessings from God, Bad people do bad things and get the opposite. But rather, all of us are really messed up except Jesus. 
then what do we learn from this story? Well, in Persian culture, the most important thing about a man was his power and his wealth. That's why the king paraded his power and wealth before all his colleagues, so they would admire his greatness. In Persian culture, the most important thing about a woman was her beauty and sexuality. That's why you would have wanted to be one that got accepted into the king's harem. Now, it wouldn't have been awful to live in a culture like that. Wouldn't it have been terrible to live in a place where men were valued for what they had and women were valued for what they looked like? Wouldn't that have been crazy? Can you imagine living a place where it was like that? Aren't you glad we didn't live back then? <laughs> Obviously, friends, nothing has changed. Men still look for power, control, and money as their source of worth. Right? Many women still look to beauty, relationships, and affirmation for others for their worth. Even more so, when life isn't good, like it wasn't for the king at this point, our tendency is to simply lean further into those natural tendencies. Now, maybe you don't go as far as the king did, but that's merely because you don't get what your heart's desire is, like he did. It's not because we're any better. The young men in Xerxes' life gave him counsel. Life's hard, you're down, sex will fix it. When we don't find our freedom, forgiveness, joy, acceptance, worth, beauty, value in God will invariably seek to find it somewhere else. You cannot not do that. Just like you cannot keep yourself from taking your next breath. Power, wealth, sex, beauty, relationships, it's all the same. One of the best things we can do for each other as a church is be honest about these struggles. Don't keep them locked up inside your heart. Let it out. Be careful whom you listen to when things go badly for you. Choose your advisors very carefully. Go to people who will point you back to Jesus and give you godly counsel. Not people who will say, lean into your natural tendencies. Run to good Christian friends who will lead you back to Christ again and again and again. And be that friend to others. That's probably the best thing we can possibly do for one another. Is speak truth. Be honest about these struggles. Invite people in. Now let's read on and we'll come back to a few of these things in a little bit. So chapter five, verse 5, what happens next? Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jar, son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who was carried away with who was carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away by Jehokim, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadesha, that is Esther, first time she's come up, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. 
So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided for her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with the seven choice young men from the king's palace and advanced her and the young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had made, not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. In other words, keep your faith, keep your identity, keep your love for God to yourself. Verse 11, And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. That is the definition of coward. We will come back to that. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Asherus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period for their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointment for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in. And in the morning, she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shashenksa. <laughs> this is the origin of the rapper Shashenksa. <laughs> the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail and the, daughter, the uncle of Mordecai, who was taken her as his own daughter to go to the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had been in charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ashurus in his royal palace in the tenth month, in the month of Tephtah, in the seventh year of his reign, in other words, four years... So chapter 1 to now, four years have passed. The king loved Esther more than all the women. She won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Esther has entered the story. The heroine who the book is named after. Esther was a Jew living in Persia. She was probably born there. Her ancestors a hundred years earlier had been carried off from Jerusalem when Israel fell to Babylon. In other words, Israel disobeyed God. So God gave them the consequence of being taken away from His presence, taken away from the land, from the temple that they had been given. Her parents were dead, so her older cousin Mordecai adopted her and raised her. Not many people in Scripture are described in this way. Apparently she was dropped dead gorgeous. Both Mordecai and Esther and all the other Jews, by this point in the story, should have already gone back to Jerusalem. It was sinful for her to continue to be in Susha. 
God's people were told to live in God's place at this point in history because God dwelled there. He, he made himself known there. There was a particular point, a geographical place where God said, come here and worship me among my people. So she should have already gone back. They were no longer forced to be scattered around the kingdom of Persia. They were allowed to go home, and yet she hadn't gone. The place in the Old Testament where God made himself known was in Jerusalem. All the faithful Jews had already returned. Broadly speaking, those who had acclimated themselves to the culture that they were in, they chose to stay. They were unfaithful to God. Esther was one of those. Now, although the passage we just read doesn't address all of this directly, when Esther was drafted for The Bachelor, she faced a very difficult situation. Let me see if I could draw that out for you a little bit. Here's some questions she would have had to ask. Number one, should I refuse to go to the harem and face whatever ramifications should come? Should I choose to obey God and not man? She would have had to have asked that question. Should I follow Mordecai's instructions to keep my religious and ethnic heritage private? Or should I come out? Should I go along, just play the part, see it as the the best of the worst options? Or should I just go for it and enjoy it? Should I like it? Should I imagine and then find out through participation? What is it like to be pampered and doted over for a year? And then go in and make all of this opportunity. Esther faced very, very difficult ethical, moral questions. Do you? Do you ever face circumstances where you find yourself asking, what in the world do I do? Are there times when you're grappling with the Scriptures, you're reading, you're looking, you're searching on the Internet, Googling Bible and X, whatever the decision is, and you don't seem to find a clear-cut answer? Does that happen? It happens often. Often. We, too, face morally complicated situations. What is the right thing to do isn't always clear. When I was a teenager and early into college, life was a lot more neat and tidy than it is in my 30s after dealing with many, many people in many situations. For some of us, we like to paint the world in moral black and whites. Everything is always crystal clear. But life just doesn't work that way. What should Esther do? What was right? Did the ends justify the means? She faced a really difficult situation. I find her in this book massively helpful because life is complicated. We face things that require wisdom and study and time and Christian friends in order to make good decisions. And Esther in particular is helpful not because she did the right thing, but because she did the wrong thing. Esther blew it. If, if the version of the story you've heard is Esther is amoral or Esther did what she had to do because she had no other choice, 
then you've heard the VeggieTales version of the story. Or you've watched the movie that uh, doesn't paint at all the correct picture. Esther was not passive in her sin. She was quite active. Esther fell in that last category. She fell in the, I'm going to pursue this and I'm going to like it. So I find her helpful because she completely blew what she should have done. And yet, we'll find in the weeks subsequent to this one that God worked in spite of it. That even through her sin, God was providentially at work. God turns the story on its head. Esther was an imperfect person who he, as a perfect God, could somehow work even through her sin to accomplish her good purposes, his good purposes. I had no category for that kind of thing when I was younger. Esther's the only person in the book of Esther that's given two names. Did you catch it when we're reading? She's called Esther, which was her godless pagan name, and she's called Hadessa, which was her Jewish name. This story's subtle. You have to read between the lines. But what the author's saying is she's kind of Christian and kind of not. She's caught in two worlds. She's trying to do the right thing and yet enjoying not doing the right thing. Is that the way you live? Torn between two kingdoms, one foot in each. If so, you're trying something that's been tried many, many times before. And Esther's going to give you the journey from not walking with God to walking with God. We're going to see that. And she's going to massively, royally screw up. And yet God's going to use her. We'll find in this story that God can use someone like Esther for His purposes. He can redeem her sin and infuse forgiveness and hope into her wicked heart. If He can do that with her, then my friend, He can surely do it with you. No matter how badly you've messed up your life, you can't write yourself out of God's grand script. If He's got you in there, you're going to remain in there. The question is just how long is it going to take? How bloody are your knees going to have to become? God's going to redeem you. He'll use even your sin for His glory. The message of the Bible is that God's persistently, powerfully, and graciously giving us His grace and love to people who don't seek it, don't ask for it, don't deserve it, and certainly never earn it. Now, how Esther became queen of Persia is tragic because both Esther and Mordecai were deeply sinful. Here's here's how it would happen. Esther would be brought in to a group of hundreds of women, hundreds, who had been selected merely because of the way they looked. And then they would be given beauty treatments for a year. One by one by one, they'd get their night with the king. They'd go in to see him when? Did you catch that? At bedtime. So there's no dinner in a movie. There's, there's no, let me get to know you. There's no, I'm interested in your story. This is merely come in, take your clothes off, and let me do whatever I want. One night for one purpose. 
Can you win the king? The next morning, there was only a few options for them. History tells us that most women who went into the king lost their virginity to a man they'd never see again. If they were just average in beauty and average in bed, they'd join the king's harem and they'd never be called on again. Tragic. For these women, they would spend the rest of their lives in isolation from society. They weren't allowed to return to their families. They could never get married. Unless they got pregnant from that one time with the king, they'd never had kids. They'd simply live the rest of their days marked by guilt, shame, and the consequence of their one-night stand. It was like persistent, permanent widowhood, except they never had a husband. Some of you feel exactly the same way. You've been chewed up, used, tossed aside, broken, and you feel dirty. The message of Scripture to you is not clean yourself up so that God would love you. I have a friend who's a pastor, and he took a friend to hear someone preach. And this man was preaching on sexuality to a room full of college students. He took a rose and he handed it to someone and he said, pass it around. By the end of the night, he says, I'd like that rose, please. Somebody brings up the rose and what did it look like? It's just beaten to shreds, right? Been passed around, been handled by everybody in the room. And the preacher says to the, the group, that's the way you look before God. You have taken the, your beautiful sexuality and just allowed yourself to be handled. That man deserves to never stand again under the Word of God because that's not what God would say. What God would say is, Jesus wants the rose. Jesus takes the broken and makes them pure and holy and clean before Him. So, however you've been handled or whoever you've handled, Jesus wants you. He loves you. There's nothing to clean up. Don't live the rest of your life as though you're in the harem and you've been fondled and now you can't be forgiven. You can. So that's one set of women. If... Secondly, if the king thought you were pretty and you were decent in bed, then you'd become a concubine. So every now and then when he remembered what that was like, he'd call you back. You'd get another encounter. You'd go back to the rest of the ladies. Third, if you were really, really awesome, then you might become one of the wives. You might be named as one of them. And then if you were incredible, drop-dead gorgeous, and fully aware of how to use that, then you might become queen. Men, this was an awful, wicked, terrible system. But I'm not sure it's any different than what we do today. We manipulate, use, and abuse women. We just are checked by a culture that limits our desires. This king wasn't. We get one-night stands or quick relationships, or most commonly, we choose from a menu on the computer what we'd most want to observe. 
Jesus can rescue you from that garbage. Ladies, this was an awful, wicked, terrible system. But I'm not sure you're any different either. You can use your body, your touch, the way you speak, the way you dress, how you flirt, just like Esther. You can find your worth and meaning. You can feel good about yourself because of how men look at you and express interest in you. Jesus, too, can deliver you from that. He can give you something much better. There's simply no way that Esther won the title of queen by being a resistant, passive, innocent victim. She engaged just like you do. Now, please understand me. The men treated her horribly, horribly. But she had a choice, and she chose to sin. Jesus can rescue us from the ridiculousness of how we live out our sexuality today. I'm convinced one of our greatest opportunities as Christians in this culture is to show a better way in how we do relationships. Not to be prudish, not to think sex is bad, but to hold up a much grander, higher, more life-giving, joyous, fun view of the way this is supposed to work. The only way we're going to do that is to quit pretending that we've done it correctly, admit we haven't, and seek fulfillment in Christ. Only then can these things be used in such a way that God is made much of, not the idol. But honestly, Mordecai is the one in the story who bothers me the most. He adopted Esther into his home. He raised her. He had to have known how beautiful she was. He had to have known she had daddy issues. He's not clueless to the fact that he had to adopt her because dad died. He had to have known her susceptibility to allowing her beauty and sex to give her hope. He had to have. And yet what does he do? How does he protect her? How does he stand up for her? He does nothing. Nothing. He simply says to her, hide your faith. And then he sends her into a living hell, the harem. If you're here in the room and you're a dad of a daughter, then look at verse 11. Every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem. So he looked out into where there's hundreds of women daily receiving treatment so they can get their one night with the king. And what does he do? He looks in to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. It's not that he didn't care. He cared a lot. It's not that he didn't know what she was being prepped for. He, he wasn't thinking she's getting the best training in checkers ever. And they're going to play a mean game of checkers. Like he's fully aware yet he does nothing. We'll see him later in the story choose to take a stand for truth and yet to do it over something that related to him. Man, this is the curse of our day. It is passivity. We grapple between rage and anger and harshness over stuff that doesn't matter 
and complete checking out, complete abdication of our responsibilities for the things that matter most. And dads, there is nothing more important than you standing up for the purity of your daughters. There's nothing more important than you serving her, caring for her, giving for her by saying, no, this is not going down this way. Esther wasn't a grown woman. She was a teenager. He should have said, no, I'm going to smuggle you. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to hide you. You're not going into that disgusting pig of a man. And yet he didn't do it. Not because he didn't care. He clearly cares. He kept looking, wondering, probably praying. But he did nothing. Fathers, husbands, don't be passive. Stand up, protect, tend to, give your life for. Men in the room that aren't husbands or fathers, there are ladies in our church family that need those kinds of men in their lives. So I guess in closing, I'd ask, who are you most like in the story? Are you most like the king? Do you have a sense of power? Are there decisions you've made that you're regretting and now feeling down in the dumps about? Has your pride been broken? Are you counting on your money and power and pleasure to satisfy you? If so, be particularly careful that you're not running to relationships and sex to fix it. Because it won't. You've got to run to Christ. Or are you more like Esther? Has your beauty gone to your head? Are you giving yourself to sinful men? Are you finding yourself a sense of worth wrapped up in what other people think about you and how you look? Or are you Mordecai? Are you passive in the face of evil? Do you find yourself sitting in front of the TV and video games when there's injustice being done all around you? All of us are one of these. The question is, which one? What I'm attempting to get at in closing is Esther entered a year of beauty treatments. We all think we need beauty treatments. Apart from God, we are all looking for the world to satisfy us. How are you giving yourself as a concubine to the world's systems and values and priorities? For Esther, it was her beauty. For Mordecai, it was his passivity. For Xerxes, it was his power and control. What is it for you? If you can't tell, simply ask somebody around you who actually loves you, and they'll tell you. Because it's obvious in the way you live your life. Sex, work, kids, possessions, money, accomplishments, degrees, marriage, control, health, wealth, intellectualism, respect, singleness, intellectualism, women, men, all of these things can turn into gods that we would worship. But don't despair. God's good providence can come even through our evil actions. So repent today and turn to Him. Jesus wants the rose. Let's pray.